Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen on a, is it today Thursday, Charlie? It is. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. My week's been kind of unusually uh, scheduled up, so we're not doing our usual Wednesday, but I couldn't suddenly remember what day of the week it was, um, which is never, never a good sign. So how are you today? Doing well, doing well. It's um, nice and sunny. Are you in Florida? Yeah, in Florida. Nice and sunny. Nice breeze to take the edge off. At what point in the year does it get unbearably hot where you are? Well, I never really find it unbearable, to be honest, but uh, people would say July and August. Okay. So about like Texas then. Yeah. Yeah. I like yeah, it. We're about to, we're on the verge of our unbearable months, but uh, quite nice. Right I, I, think I, I think I think I get away with it because we're on the water. If you go to Orlando yeah, in August, then it's unbearable. <laughs> yeah, uh, North North Texas is not on the water anywhere. No. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but but Texas well, has some places on the water too that are unbearable, like Galveston. <laughs> yeah, and Houston and all that. Uh, those the waterfront part of Texas, Corpus Christi, uh, all pretty pretty rough in the uh, summers. So. Do you know who has a lot of student loans typically? No. People who go to graduate school and who go to really expensive colleges. For instance, if you enrolled in a graduate program in physics at Stanford, you would accumulate a lot of student loans in most cases unless you quit after your first day and go on to become the wealthiest man in the world. So I figured today we would talk about student loans and Elon Musk. Wait a minute. Did that happen? I didn't know that. Unless I'm misremembering, I think he was in the PhD program in physics and went for one day and then quit and went to work for, I guess, what became PayPal. Well, he founded a bank called X.com, and that became the financial side of PayPal. That's quite interesting, just as a sidebar. Nowadays, we take it for granted, but... The PayPal side of it w- was the online experience, the browser, the security, the, the form. And the Elon Musk side of it was at X.com, which was this bank. And at the time, no one was quite sure if that was going to happen. <laughs> because, I mean, people did not want to put their financial information into a computer over the internet, which is, of course, why PayPal became what, what it did, as well as its uh, yeah. alliance with eBay. But it wasn't guaranteed that they'd get regulatory approval for it. I mean, th- th- people say, oh, he made his money almost in the traditional way now, right? You know, because the other two <laughs> things he does are, are so different. Oh, well, he made his money. In the, but that wasn't the traditional way in, in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, before we go on to them, actually, you were mentioning uh, someone who I admire a lot, but haven't been following recently, uh, who is Mark Andreessen. Um, who really, in many ways, um, I mean, he's not the inventor of the internet, but he's sort of the guy who made it usable for people by introducing the first uh, generally available and usable web browser. Netscape. Um, Netscape, yeah. I, I was an early he adopter is, uh, at the age of 10. Yeah, I was in uh, in college, I guess, uh, when that came out. So um, it did it did change the world. And, of course, he is now the first half of Andreessen Horowitz, which is 
I guess by most accounts, the most important of the Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road venture capital firms. A uh, very interesting guy who occasionally would um, apparently do something on Twitter that would rile people up and then went very quiet for a while. And now you're telling me is uh, is no longer being quiet. No, he seems worried. He, he seems worried that the censoriousness and the liberalism that we have seen is going to extend to what we would regard as the common carriers that make the internet work. Common carriers is a misleading term because it doesn't quite work like that. The Obama administration tried to apply the 1934 Communications Act to the internet. It doesn't work for lots of boring reasons. Um, but he seems to be worried that the the stacks, as the lingo has it, that make the internet work, the ISPs, the data transfer backbones, the data centers, the servers themselves, and then, of course, credit card companies, uh, are going to be taken over by the woke who will essentially assign social credit scores to everyone and, and lock them out. Um, I've just been watching this uh, over the last few weeks with interest. Mm. What do you think about that? Well, it, it's the one area where I favor regulation to stop that. Uh, I don't, for example, have a problem with AT&T being unable to discriminate on the basis of viewpoint you know if you if you live in a apartment building or in a city or frankly anywhere uh, the choices available to you for the backbone infrastructure um, of the telecommunications you need are, are limited um, it's very difficult on the 17th floor of an apartment building in Brooklyn to say, no, actually, I don't want Comcast or Verizon. Um, you know, now, what, what some conservatives and well, a lot of progressives too, Elizabeth Warren most notably, have done is they've tried to extend that criticism to Twitter or Facebook. And they say, well, it's popular therefore it's a monopoly but of course that doesn't make much sense facebook is one website on the internet has first amendment rights um but you know historically at&t did not so you, you can't if you're at&t say we're not going to install a phone line into your house and maintain service on it if you're a nazi facebook can say you can't be a member if you're a nazi so i would favor some rules uh the governing isps um, for example, uh, that said, you know, Comcast can't discriminate based on viewpoint with what goes in and out of your house. Can't tell you the <clears> site <throat> is off limits. Um, and I, I don't know if it's necessary to do it quite like this, but but I think it is a good thing that historically data centers and trunk lines have been viewpoint neutral. What about the credit card companies? Because there are essentially only two, right? And it's um, well, it's three, right? Visa, Mastercard, have, American Express. I think American Express uses one of their other systems. Oh, so you know, there are lots of people who can issue credit cards, but there are only two companies that actually do the handling of transactions. I think I may be wrong about that, but I think there's only two. So I spoke to Andrew Stutterford about this a while ago because the idea doesn't horrify me, and he said he didn't think it was necessary still, but. You know, there are people out there who who strongly w 
desire to use the credit card companies to achieve their political ends. And, um, you know, the most famous among them is, is his name Andrew Ross Sorkin in the New York Times? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Who's written this, that, that Visa and MasterCard and American Express should just say, no, you can't buy guns with our cards, our payment network. Yeah. And if they did that, then people would have a real problem. And he's right, they would. Now, they've never gone near doing it. Um, and that's Andrew's point, is that, is that it would be such a dramatic sea change that would probably unsettle the regulatory environment so much, because, of course, one half of the country would be up in arms and the Republican Party would say, right, that's enough. That, that well, they'd only be up it. in arms because they only they only they already have guns. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I mean, I think it's a really interesting area, um, and and I think Mark Andreessen is right to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't know as much about the specifics of this stuff as you do, although I've read some of your pieces on it in Section Two Thirty and all that, and I have um, benefited by reading them. I am, um, yeah, I suppose like you, a little, little torn on that stuff. And then I'm just, I'm hesitant to, uh, endorse just sort of business regulations, new ones in general, uh, certainly ones that limit what kind of political activism a private company can engage in. But at the same time, you do have these, um, choke points in the economy that can be used, um, in a really heavy handed and a repressive way. Yeah. Um, you know, you're talking about, you know, you can't use my ISP if you're a Nazi, but that is actually something that's happened, right? Uh, wasn't it Stormfront, I think, that well, was no, um, no, you more see, or less that, that taken was, off the internet? No, um, that, that's Cloudfront. Uh, Cloudfront does a number of things, but one of the things that it does is it provides what's called a reverse proxy service. So you put mm -hmm. your Cloudfront account uh, in front of your website. You sign up. So you have kevinwilliamson.com, and uh, right. it's constantly So just being... to be clear here, Stormfront using Cloudfront. Yes. <laughs> so what happened there was that uh, Stormfront a had a website, front. and of course, one of the problems when you have a website, especially if you're unpopular, uh, is that people try and bring it down, and they try and bring it down with uh, distributed denial-of-service attacks, which basically means they overload it with requests, or they try and saturate the... Um, data um, lines uh, between uh, it and the broader internet. And um, to mitigate that threat, there's a company, I mean, there are, there are many of them, but the most famous one, the most effective one is, is CloudFront. Um, and what CloudFront will do is it will put its proxy servers in front of your website. Um, it will also handle your DNS, which is a, essentially the telephone book of the internet. It does more than that. And it will take the heat. So it will proxy the request through its servers to your server. And because CloudFront is extremely um, robust, uh, you know, if you pay them, I think it's $20 a month, they will essentially take unlimited hits on your behalf. And <clears throat> they have extremely sophisticated um, software that, that can sense when it's being attacked and um, and respond. It, it also works quite well as uh, as essentially a distributed content delivery network because if you're proxying and caching at the edge near to you, 
then you only need a website in one place. So if you have a website in Florida, but someone's looking on Australia, they will hit the CloudFront server, not the one in Florida, and the experience will be faster. Anyway, Stormfront was using CloudFront as a way of um, mitigating the risk of being brought down by people who don't like Stormfront. And um, their CEO, I believe, said, I don't want to do that. And so he took them off the service. Um, Now, he regretted it. Um, I don't think that requires... Why did he regret it? He said he didn't like the power that he recognized Mm. that he had. I mean, he did have a lot of power, and and CloudFront's a very uh, popular tool, but it's not the case that it took them off the internet. Uh, It just took away um, that level of protection. Um, so I don't really think that sort well, I, of service... I was misinformed. I guess I haven't been hitting Stormfront as often as I used to. <laughs> that, that, that sort of service doesn't really need any protection, in my view. It's one of many. Um, but um, I think when the product becomes analogous to water, I am interested in regulation. Right? If, if, if okay, you could realistically analogize it to the water company, uh, where... You, you you don't allow water companies to shut people off because they don't like their politics. Because there's not really much choice, right? I mean, it's a pipe uh, and and that runs from the road and, and it goes through all sorts of technical um, treatments that, that most people don't understand. And I think AT&T's uh, phone lines are analogizable to water. Um, I don't think Twitter is. I mean, it's just a website. I don't think Amazon Web Services is because there's a hundred hosts out there. I don't think a given data center is. I think maybe the trunk lines that exist between data centers could be regarded as equivalent to water because they're just basically very big pipes that uh, that move information across the country at the speed of light and don't know what it is when they're doing it. Um, and really, you know, you can't look in, especially if it's encrypted, and see what the data is. So that's my view. Gotcha. Well, that brings us roundabout to Elon Musk and Twitter. In our earlier conversation, I was referring to him just by his first name as though we were friends. But um, I think there are so few Elons in public life <laughs> that everyone knows who you're talking about. Um, it's like Sting, you know, or someone like that. I think you're allowed to uh, to call him just that. So he, of course, is trying to uh, make an end run around that issue by simply acquiring uh, Twitter, which is what he's going to be able to do, and imposing his own rules, uh, which, as I understand it, he intends to make much more liberal and freewheeling than the current practices of Twitter. Although more important, I think, is his proposal to make uh, certain aspects of their algorithm and their decision-making processes and the way they handle their content moderation, what gets promoted, what gets um, repressed public um, in order to uh, use that as a way of pressuring the company to behave in a more fair and even-handed fashion rather than what currently looks like um, a very, very political, partisan, and arbitrary fashion. Are you uh, more or less in favor? I'm strongly in favor of it. I, I don't think... Do you think he meant to buy Twitter? Do you think he was kind of joking at first and then was like, oh, crap, now I have to do it? 
<laughs> Maybe. I wish we were all that lucky. <laughs> yeah, I kind of think that I, I got the feeling it was sort of a Donald Trump presidential campaign thing, where it's a little bit of a publicity stunt and a little bit of a troll. And then it was, oh, crap, <laughs> looks like this is going to happen. <laughs> well, whatever the, the path that got him here, uh, I'm pleased about it. Um, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of people saying that Elon Musk wants to get rid of content moderation. But that's nonsense. That, that is self-serving nonsense. He never said that. No one has said that. The number of people who think that Twitter should be completely unmoderated is very, very small. Um, what yeah. people have complained about quite rightly for years is that the moderation is very clearly self-serving and pretextual and biased. It's not that there is any great appetite out there for allowing people to say, you know, I'm going to kill you to someone else. It's not that there's a great appetite out there for, for people publishing the home addresses of their political or economic rivals. The issue is that, you know... It's the Hunter Biden laptop story that gets suppressed and nothing else. It's the Babylon Bee that gets right. suspended for joking. And clearly conservatives uh, have been treated differently. And, and I think if Musk wants to change that and, and really have a set of neutral rules insofar as that is possible, that's a good thing. And, and when it comes to your point about transparency, uh, I mean, if he wants to make Twitter's code open source, fine. Um but yes, what he really should be doing is making public the variables. I mean, obviously, you know, if you have a, a firewall and the firewall uh, looks for certain response codes and then counts up how many occur within a minute and then blocks you if you trigger uh, that response code that number of times in a minute, um, there is a piece of software underneath that. Um, and then there's the input. You can set the variables at wherever you want, right? You can say 10, 15, 20, 30. You don't have to release your code. You don't have to tell everyone how your firewall works. What you need to tell them is what it does. And I think that, that Musk would do a great service if he said, okay, well, we have a set of, um, I mean, algorithms is sometimes the wrong word, um, but we have a code base here. And here is what the staff have plugged into it. Here is what it's looking for. Here is its uh, uh, its uh, uh, tolerance level. Here are its thresholds. Um, here are the words that it considers verboten. Um, here is here is how it determines harassment. Um, you know that would be very useful to know because I just. I know a lot of people who've who've been suspended from Twitter, and some of them deserved it, frankly, and some of them really didn't. And there's no difference in the way they're treated because there's no due process. <laughs> there's no way of talking to, to Twitter and finding out what they did. Some of them don't know. Um, that would be good to stop. Yeah. You know, I would say that being the wealthiest man in the world, he can afford to have principles and do the right thing and take a stand. But that's not always the case. You know, as I understand it, I don't know the man, I've never met him, but Jeff Bezos, um, I know people who know him, and they tell me that he is kind of a Reason Magazine libertarian sort of guy, um, but he allows his company to be used in this, you know, repressive, woke kind of way. I think of the situation with Ryan Anderson's book on the transgender controversy. That would have been a really good opportunity for someone like him to step forward 
and say, no, we don't ban books from our store uh, based on the fact that people don't like their political point of view. You know, it's not a question of um, obscenity. It's not a question of using racial epithets. It's not a question of anything like that. It's just that someone disagrees with you about this very controversial issue. But he punked out on it and went along with it. And that is, I think, uh, disheartening. But we see this pretty frequently. You know, these guys who are billionaires, who have the money to do whatever they want to in life, turn out to be really easy to bully. Because I don't even know if it's in spite of their money, but it might be actually, in, to some extent, because of their money and the way they sometimes feel guilty or self-conscious about how wealthy they are, that they are really easy to bully um, socially. You know, they're really, really responsive to social pressure. They're really, really responsible to criticism within their peer group, um, within their firms, within, you know, their, uh, their friend set. And of course, they all basically live in the same neighborhood. They all have gone to the same schools, pretty much. Um, they have the same social circles. They tend to have the same politics, the same biases. They read the same books. They have, you know, similar prejudices, similar points of view. So you end up getting this uh, bias that feeds on itself and makes itself worse. I have to say, I was confused when I first heard that there were people out there who thought that if a company such as Amazon, whose stated purpose was to sell every book in the world, sold a book, that it was in some way endorsing it. Because it had never crossed my mind. Yeah. I mean, Amazon, unless I'm wrong, sells Mein Kampf. I'd, I've never thought, I bet yeah, Jeff yeah. Bezos is sympathetic. <laughs> of course it's not. I was thinking about that because um, I forget who it was that canceled Woody Allen's book, but the publisher is the U.S. publisher of Mein Kampf. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's fine. And I, and personally, I think it's important to keep books like Mein Kampf in print. Um, this is... A, do you have some uh, weed whacking going yeah. on out there? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, uh, this is this is this is emblematic. We used to be in New York City, sitting at our desks, and we would get sirens in the background or other New York type sounds. And now that you're Joe Suburbs, we're getting the uh, we're getting the leaf blower in the background. Is it a, is it a leaf blower? Or is it something else? Uh, it's a leaf blower. It's not really blowing any leaves. Uh, uh, it's it's blowing what happens when away what happens when there's a storm here which is the i suppose there's some leaves but anyway it's a leaf blower <laughs> i wrote a whole column about how much i hate leaf blowers as you may remember yeah people get so upset about them michael brendan doherty is the same is he yep michael and i have more in common than you would think yeah given absolutely. that we disagree on so many things yeah. uh, politically all right so we have Positive but moderate expectations for Elon Musk and Twitter. Should we move on to student loans? I think we should. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing at the background noise. It's, uh, it's making me giggle. <laughs> so you and I have both written a great deal about this because it's such an irritating issue. Um, the Democrats going out there and saying, we're the party of the working class. And we're the party of people who are struggling financially. And the top thing in our agenda is forgiving people's federal student loan debt when people who have federal student loans are uh, disproportionately high income 
basically every debt forgiveness uh, program or proposal that's been put forward tends to disproportionately benefit people toward the top of the income curve because those are the people who tend to have the largest student loans. And of course, people who go to college tend to make more money than people who don't go to college. Even people who go to college and don't get a degree uh, make more money than people who don't go to college at all. So if you wanted to do something for poor people, student loan forgiveness would not really be at the top of your list. We could pay off their credit cards, we could pay off their mortgages. There are a lot of people who are poor who have all sorts of very, very cumbrous debt, um, sometimes taken on in circumstances that were um, they didn't understand what they were doing or where they had financial expectations that they thought they were going to be doing better in life than they are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm not generally in favor of that sort of thing just because I think it's not the best way to to organize things. But if you're going to give a handout to somebody, shouldn't we be giving handouts to people who are poor, not to people who are wealthy or at least relatively high income? <laughs> yes. And every single thing about this is contrived in a laboratory to anger me. I, I didn't say <laughs> annoy. I said anger. This angers me. I mean, for a start, this is the, the president of the United States proposing that he will do this alone without Congress. Yeah. Nancy Pelosi said last year that Biden can't do it. The president doesn't have the power. The well, now Elizabeth Warren has said he does, so I guess the he's Department of Education. like the cushion that always bears the imprint of the last person to have sat on it. Well, the Department of Education said a year ago that it, and therefore the president, did not have this, this power. And, and, and I think the, mm. the idea, leave, leave aside the rest of it for a second, the idea that the president could, at the stroke of a pen, spend $1.7 trillion. Yes. Increase the debt, raise taxes <laughs> in the long run by one point seven yeah. trillion dollars is just such a a disastrous, disastrous attack on our on our separation of powers. So, so there's that, but and then there's the the detail. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's morally repugnant in and of itself. Uh, you know, there there are a few areas in which I'm basically just a good old-fashioned, unvarnished conservative. Um, one of them is I think people should get a job. That's pretty much my answer. Get a job. I know there are some circumstances in which that's impossible, and there are some people who can't work. But for 95% of people, go get a job. And the other one is pay your debts. No one yeah. forced these people to take out these loans. They chose to do it, and they got a service for it. It's no different than my house. I took out the debt, I have the house. So what do they want? They want to be free of the debt, but keep the service, which is no, no different than... You can't than... repossess an education, really, I suppose. Right. And... It'd be interesting if you could. It's a good science fiction story right <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, that would, wouldn't it? But <laughs> I, I find that... Kind of like, like the reverse of Total Recall. <laughs> I, I find that repugnant. Um, you, you know, we're talking about a, a class of people here who have the lowest unemployment rate in the country, 2% for those with degrees, 3% for those with some college. We're talking about a class of people who has not had to pay their debts in this area for two years. We're talking about a class of people who in many ways is benefiting from disastrous inflation rates because the debt will wither away 
over time. Yeah. We're talking about people who were not exempt from all of those checks that were handed out over the last two years uh, in, in the fight against COVID. We're talking about people who are probably in a better position than everyone else. And they want what they call the cancellation of student debt. But it's not cancelled. You can't cancel it. It's already been issued and spent and, and enjoyed. Yeah. You can just transfer liability to everyone else, namely the majority of Americans who did not go to college. And you know, if you start from you should pay your debts, that should absolutely appall you. Um, it should also be a political non-starter because the argument for it outside of I would like more money, please, is that it would help stimulate demand in the economy, which is the last thing we need to be doing right now. Yeah. So I just, I, I don't a, know how we got even to discussing this as, <laughs> as an idea. You know, what's interesting about this, one of the things interesting about it, I've argued for a long time, and I think maybe you're sympathetic here, that our welfare state is too complex. We try to do too many different things. We try to put too many conditions on things that probably the best and most efficient thing for us to do would be to give poor people money, to send them checks and, um, you know, figure it out, whatever level you think that people need to be brought up to even it up. I think that would be um, the most direct and probably the most economically efficient and uh, maybe the most um, politically non-corrosive way to go about doing it. But I think, I suspect very strongly that if you were to do that, you would find that if you were sending checks to low-income people who have student loans, they would not use the money to pay off their student loans because they'll probably have other kinds of debt as well at a much higher interest rate than they're paying on their student loans or other consumption needs, um, whereas student loans are already subsidized uh, at the interest rate, which makes them a quite attractive thing to hold. You know, if you could finance a car on the terms that you could finance a Harvard education, you would certainly do that. It would beat, you know, the alternatives or even a house, even though mortgage rates have been pretty low for the last few years. And yet, Kevin, uh, and yet a lot of people do prioritize paying off their student loans, whether that's for psychological reasons or oh, a, a, a rite of passage well, into adulthood. I have enough Puritan in me that I'm afraid of debt. Yeah. And uh, I did, I don't like it. And I've been in debt before. And I've actually, you know, I wasn't making a lot of money when I was uh, younger and first out of school. And um, such. I had very, very modest debts at the time, but they seemed very, very heavy. And I thought I would never pay them off. Um, so I get that. I get the, the fear of debt. But I think that even poor people can be rational economic actors. And even if they're not perfectly rational or perfectly responsible, they probably know more about their own economic situation and their own needs than someone in Washington, uh, a thousand miles away and three tax brackets away from them, uh, can judge on their behalf. What's the, I mean, the unspoken thing here, and that's what really annoyed me about the Elizabeth Warren column in the New York Times is all about working people, is that um, one of the most interesting and consequential developments in American politics in the last couple of decades is that the parties have really uh, traded places when it comes to class. You know, the Republicans used to be the party of upper-income suburban professionals, and the Democrats were the party of, among other things, uh, blue-collar industrial workers and farmers. To such an extent, as I always like to point out, that the Minnesota Democratic Party is still known as the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. 
that was really their base. You know, my grandfather, who was as right wing as he could be, was a um, was a lifelong Democrat, wouldn't think about voting for a Republican because he had been a farmer during the Depression or had been in a farming community during the Depression. And uh, Democrats were the party that had been sympathetic to people like him, or at least so he perceived it. You know, I grew up not too far from the town of New Deal, Texas. Um, that was a very, very big deal for those sorts of people. Now, people who are in agricultural and rural communities vote almost exclusively Republican. They're about as reliably Republican as African-Americans are Democratic. And that's pretty heavily, you know, it's high 80 percentages uh, sometimes going into 90 in some presidential elections, whereas the people who used to be Republicans, you know, kind of upper middle income to lower upper income, college educated, uh, suburban or metropolitan professionals are much, much more Democratic than they used to be. It's interesting because um, people will say, well, the Republicans are still the party of the rich, because if you look at people who make $100,000 and up, they vote for Republicans more often than they do Democrats, which is true. But about 30% of the population are in households that make $100,000 or up. If you look at $500,000 or up, which is about the top 4%, uh, they're more Democratic than they are Republican, yeah. at least in recent presidential elections. So the Democrats have become the party of relatively upper income and very high income people, and then also very poor people, but not working class people, people who aren't working for the most part. So where they have a really, really strong correlation is with uh, welfare programs. So people who are receiving poverty-related government benefits, as opposed to age-related ones who tend to be Republican, uh, are much, much more likely to vote a Democrat than Republican, about twice as likely as I understand last time I looked at the numbers on this. So the Democrats don't want to tell the truth for some reason about where their party is. Now, in a sense, I don't think that would be politically bad to say, yeah, we're the party of educated people, and we're also the party of poor people in need that we do things to take care of. Isn't that a good thing to be? Whereas the Republicans are a party of, you know, these dying farming communities and uh, angry people who um, freak out when they see a billboard in Spanish. I mean, that's not a fair characterization. Not even a close. useful characterization. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other class element to this is uh, something I've, I've written about a great deal, which is the completely unjustified preference for college education over everything else again yeah. i'm not against college i went i really enjoyed it and i'm pleased i i went and i wouldn't change it uh but I first where off, you do. <laughs> it's funny because it, it, you always do this and you're the one who does this to me i never said all that. <laughs> i but, know i just like to tease you about it but there is this ingrained assumption college it was a exactly there is this ingrained assumption in in many people that well we should pay for people to go to college because college is good is it i mean sometimes yeah. it is and sometimes it's not and even when it is it's not necessarily better than the things that we just don't fund joe biden is yeah. not sitting in his office wondering whether he should pay off all of the f-150s that are necessary to the work of plumbers and landscapers and roofers why not? Yeah. Why not? It would never even occur to him. Have you looked at the him. cost of an F-150 lately? Good Lord. Okay, but, but you yeah. know, $50,000, uh, if that's going to be the number, that would do wonders mm. for yeah. your, your, your average guy who chose not to go to college because he wanted to start a small business or go into the trades. And we look, I think we look down on them. I don't mean I do or you do. You, you but do, I, yeah. 
I think culturally we look down on them. We assume, oh, well, they didn't go to college. And it's ridiculous. And so, you know. It's, but the funny thing about it is that I've pointed out a number of times, there are, you know, a lot of blue collar professions that pay a lot of money. Oh, totally. In fact, they pay more money than jobs that require college degrees that aren't especially skilled. You know, and I always, I've liked the thing of um, the weird phenomenon of guys who make $60,000 a year playing with spreadsheets, going home and watching reality television shows right. about guys who are car customizers who make a quarter million dollars a year, half a million dollars a year. Right. I remember a couple of years ago, I interviewed uh, Jesse James of uh, uh, Chopper fame, and he was calling from his summer home in Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah, but that's not a bad deal for an American welder. No, that's, uh, that's, and, uh, that's a pretty good position to land in. And I, I hate that because that reminds me of England where class is based yeah. on all of these abstract notions that aren't really that closely related to anything that I think is important. And I just see that here. And I think that if did we you have... watch, um, did you watch the show, show Mad Men? Yes. Uh, I, I always thought you would uh, appreciate the line where the English character, I forget his name, his wife asks him why he likes New York. And he says, well, I've been here for two years and no one's asked me where I went to school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think that uh, if, if the Biden administration believes that we have such a crisis on our hands that a taxpayer bailout is necessary then the next administration and Congress, in the other order, Congress and the next administration, uh, should burn down the current system. Should say, okay, fine. If it's that big of a disaster, we obviously can't keep going with it. We, we can't just start issuing these loans again. We, we've proven yeah. that that doesn't work and we can't be trusted, so we've got to end that program. Uh, we'll have to tax institutions who got us into this position in the first place to, to balance the books, to get that $1.7 trillion back. And some of the people who are uh, being given this this money, um, and maybe maybe I, I honestly don't say this uh, in a de demagogic sense. You, you know me. I, I think we should we should investigate for fraud many of these colleges because I'm under the impression that a lot of them are quite useful to the people who go to them, and they raise their salaries and they make it much less likely that they'll be poor or, or even unemployed. Um, and that actually in the long run, it's a good deal to go. And that's why people borrow money. But if that's not the case, um, as must be the case, if we have to, to spread all of that liability around, um, if that's not the case, then clearly those colleges are lying uh, and they're mm -hmm. falsely representing what they do um, to the point at which the vast majority of people who don't go to college are having to bail them and their... Um, and their charges out, then then I think we have to investigate them. Um, and I think the Biden administration needs to be forced to make that decision. Is this uh, necessary? Because college doesn't work, and all of these people who went there have been stranded, like some sort of uh, victim of a Ponzi scheme? Or is it the case that college does work, and it does well for people, on average, and that they do better, and that they should pay off their own goddamn loans? And if that's the case, then we can't be bailing them out. <laughs> Pick one. And shall we and shall we treat the Department of Education as a predatory lender? Well, yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not sure I'm with you on the fraud investigation. Fraud's a pretty high bar to uh, clear. Well, so is one point seven trillion dollars in taxpayer bailouts. All right. This would say at the very least that we can't continue doing the things the way we've been doing them. Then we have to have a fundamental 
reconsideration of uh, higher education and the money that goes into it and how that money gets there. Harvard has a $56 billion endowment. Yeah, they also don't charge their students very much money. Um, you know, the Ivy League schools are actually um, the least big part of the problem. You know, uh, most people who go to Princeton, I mean, overwhelming majority of people who go to Princeton, like 87% graduate with no debt. And among those who do have debt when they graduate, the average is something like $4,000. Sure. Um, you know, the, because the Ivy Leagues have these big um, endowments, they're able to, uh, to uh, avoid setting things up in such a way that students are encouraged to saddle themselves with debt. Although that's not necessarily true for students who go to law school and such and MBA programs and things like that, which is a big part of this, by the way. You know, if you look at people who have these shockingly big student loans, they'll have $100,000 in student loans or something like that. They're mostly people who went to things like um, very, very uh, high-end law schools, high-end MBA programs and things like that. And people who are theoretically, presumably, in position where they could command pretty high incomes. My view is that every single cent that has been transferred to the taxpayer by the students or former students of a given school should be matched by the school's endowment. Hmm. Well, it's a fair position, I suppose. I mean, my real position is that we shouldn't do this at all. (laughs) Is that you should pay back your loans. But I really do think that if we're going to take this extraordinary measure, this, this destructive, catastrophic measure, then there will need to be catastrophic consequences on the other side. The first thing people will say is we didn't do that when it came to the bailouts for the banks in 2008. Well, Kevin, you and I were against a lot of the bailouts for the banks. (laughs) Yes, we were. And still are. So I'm I'm sympathetic to that, I must confess. (laughs) Gotcha. All right. Good conversation. I'll talk to you next week. All right.